Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Trish, your bartender. And I'm Sloan, your crime tender. And today we are giving you the case of Lena Clark. I don't know much about this. All Sloan's told me is it's an old-timey murder, and I do love these because they get strange and weird very quickly. We're going back to the roaring 20s. (laughs) So I'm excited. I hope you are too. So buckle up. Welcome back to another round of bartending with your bartender Trish and today I'm bringing you a drink that I saw online called uh, campfire something but um, to me it tastes like a red hot candy so I'm calling it a red hot candy drink (laughs) Um, and this drink we're getting kind of into the fall season so I feel like it's a good mix of summer and fall but To make this drink, you need grenadine, fireball, bourbon, peach juice, peach juice, rum, and cranberry juice. And what you're going to do, you're going to take one teaspoon of grenadine. I basically just kind of did a few squirts and called it a day. Really, it's just giving you the color. Um... And then it's one ounce of Fireball Whiskey, one ounce of your bourbon. I used um, our little bottle of Woodford because that's what we had on hand. (laughs) And then two ounces of your peach juice, one ounce of your rum. I used Bacardi because that's my rum of choice. And then two ounces of your cranberry. And you just want to kind of give it a shake, pour it in your cup. And you can top it with some, like, lemon wheel, maybe some cherries, whatever you're feeling. And if you want to get real fancy, get you, like, some sort of, like, spicy rim to it. Yeah. Or a cinnamon sugar rim would be pretty good with it. But this one was definitely interesting. I think for me, this would be, like, a one and done. But I'm not the (laughs) biggest fan of Big Reds. But it's definitely, like, right on the nose with that description. I I liked it. Like, it's it's not one I'll do all the time. But it's one that I would definitely do again. Yeah. But give it a shot. Let us know what you think. You know, we haven't done many bourbon drinks. So if there's some that maybe you want to suggest, let us know. And... With that being said, we'll kick you off to the episode. Lena Marietta Thankful Clark, Thankful was one of her middle names, (laughs) was by all accounts an outstanding, intelligent young woman born in 1886. Her father, Reverend Allman Taylor Clark, was a nationally known theologian of the time, and Lena devoted most of her time to the Red Cross organization, the Congregational Church, and selling war bonds during World War I. She had two sisters and a brother, Maud, who lived in West Palm Beach City as an adult and was the librarian of the town, and Susan, who married and moved to Miami to be the first florist in the area. 
And then you also had John Paul Clark, the brother, who was the postmaster of West Beach. When the children were very young, the Clark family moved to Florida from Vermont, so I'm sure that was a big change for them. Right. And Lena was known as an intelligent and precocious child, reportedly reading philosophy books at the age of six. Okay. As she got older, one newspaper described her as, quote, a queer combination, a bundle of contradictions, in personal appearance and dress, she is far from attractive. Her figure is heavy and uncorseted, and her clothes smack of the backwoods. Her shoes are generally without heels and her stockings of cotton. Her skin is very fine in texture, but covered with large disfiguring freckles. Miss Clark's only assets in appearance are her hair, which is decidedly titian and naturally wavy (laughs) and her eyes deep blue in color and absolutely unwavering in their gaze so like just not i feel like that was a very long explanation of saying she's country Uh (laughs) she she your stereotypical uh country girl yeah like not like what you see in like country music videos like the pre- no. it's it's the like bumfuck <clears throat> like the backwoods yeah probably missing a tooth country girl <laughs> the florida or the original florida woman yeah <laughs> i i get what you're saying absolutely <laughs> she was nothing to write home about is what they were saying so lena worked for more than a decade at the west palm beach post office with her brother before he left in 1918 due to hearing loss. John Paul then became a taxidermist and a snake charmer. That's an interesting jump from Postmaster. A snake charmer. Which unfortunately led him to meet a bizarre death on Christmas Day in 1920 when he was bitten by a coral snake. At least he died doing what he loved. (laughs) Sure. When John Paul left the post office, there was a bit of competition for his job. Frederick A. Millimore and Lena Clark were both candidates for the job. When Fred accused Lena of irregularities in the office, but the affair was hushed and quieted, and both lost lost out on the job to J.D. Argyle when he was made postmaster. J.D. did name Lena as the assistant because of her 15 years of experience at the post office at this point. And the same year, so he, J.D., was postmaster for two years. So the same year of John Paul's death, J.D. resigned as postmaster. A group of local businessmen then began a petition to have Lena appointed as postmistress, which was obviously a big fucking deal because it's the 1920s. And a woman would be the boss. Yeah. Lena's life began to unravel after her brother's death. Post offices at the time took in quite a bit of cash beyond stamp sales and mailing parcels. Mostly for money orders, cash on demand, and war bonds. On June 26, 1921, Lena sent $32,000 in cash... In two registered mail stacks to mail sacks to Atlanta's Federal Reserve Bank for a deposit. When the mail sacks arrived in Atlanta, they were filled with mail order catalogs cut to the size of currency. 
There was no money in it. <laughs> Did she think that they weren't going to notice? Right. Authorities sent a postal inspector and questioned Lena about the theft. On Sunday, August 1st, Lena hired a driver, Baxter Patterson, to take her from West Palm Beach to Orlando, Florida. She checked into room 87 of the San Juan Hotel in downtown Orlando under a different name. She then met up with a former mail carrier co-worker that she had an affair with, Fred Millimore. Sound familiar? The one that accused her of the 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 weird things going on in the office yeah apparently they had been having an affair the whole time fred originally from chicago left his post office job in west palm beach three months earlier to run the arcade restaurant in orlando fred was married with four children but old timers in west palm beach say it was common knowledge that lena and fred had an ongoing romantic affair and that he jilted her Okay. Later that evening, a sweaty and disheveled Lena walked into Chief E.D. Vestal's office at the police station in Orlando. She told the chief that officers should go to the San Juan Hotel and arrest Fred Millimore for the theft of $32,000 that he had stolen from the West Palm Beach post office. She told the officers that she had drugged Fred with a morphine pill Chief Vestal called the West Palm Beach Post Office and confirmed that Lena was indeed the postmistress and not just some crazy woman off the street. <laughs> he then sent officers to the hotel, but they didn't find a drugged Fred Millimore. They found a dead Fred Millimore, shot in the chest with a gun nearby. With Lena still in the chief's office, the officers relayed the condition of Fred back to the chief. He immediately accused Lena of killing Fred. At first, she denied it, but eventually she confessed that she did shoot Fred because he planned on blaming her for the theft of the $32,000. In the chief's public statement, he said that Lena told him, quote, In 1918, while she was still the assistant postmaster at West Palm Beach, there was a $38,000 shortage discovered in the office. Miss Clark said that although she never was able to get any proof, she suspected Fred. Both she and Fred, a short time later, were candidates for postmaster, and during their candidacies, $20,000 more in canceled money orders disappeared. This, too, she said she believed was Fred, who was responsible for seeking to discredit her candidacy for postmistress. She even told the chief that she had planned on buying a car and $30,000 worth of car insurance, to drive the car over a bridge and claim the insurance money to make up for the discrepancy under her reign as postmistress. So she admitted to the police officers that she was going to uh, commit insurance fraud. <laughs> but also, I love that it's like her and Fred going back and forth, just being like, it was her. No, it was him. It was her. It was him. <laughs> well, and now you don't even have Fred to say anything back. Right. <laughs> Like, it's just her saying she did this because of him. Right. <clears throat> so, on the second day of questioning, Lena said she had a dream the night before. The hotel room scene had come back to her and that she was sure he would find some of the missing money in the bathroom of her hotel room. A search revealed $725 in water-soaked bills hidden under the float in the flush tank. <laughs> Out of the $32,000, okay, 
Which back then is a lot of fucking so money. So much money. Yes. I should have looked up how much that was. My bad, y'all. My bad. Uh, da, da, da. The fact that this flusher had been in use during the three days between the murder and discovery strengthened police belief that they were planted afterward by a second man they think was involved. <laughs> so this is like the first time that they mention somebody else being involved in this. Right. <laughs> Within days, Lena was charged with first-degree murder in Orange County, and in the months leading up to the trial, Lena's story became more sensational and her celebrity status rose across the country. She was receiving fan mail and flowers, which she used to decorate her jail cell. She even repainted her jail cell. Like, this bitch was going all out in jail. Friends and family offered to raise thousands for her bail, but the judge refused. Not a bad idea. Lena used her spare time to write poetry and an autobiography, which she sold to local newspapers for 25 cents a copy. Lena recanted her confession and claimed to have no recollection of making it to Chief Vestal. As the trial approached, Lena once again changed her story about the money. Now, she claimed that the money had really been stolen in 1918, but Joseph B. Elwell, just a random businessman from from their town, loaned her $20,000 to cover up the theft. No one could interview him, though, because he had passed away at this point, by this point. So, like, literally everybody that she's bringing into this cannot corroborate or disprove her story. Smart in that way, I guess. <laughs> Joseph had been shot dead in New York in 1920 in a murder that remains unsolved to this day. Most of the $32,000 was recovered among Lena's belongings and her bank accounts. But Frank stole it. <laughs> but Frank stole it. Oh, yeah. Lena's family hired two law firms to defend her. An Orlando law firm and the West Palm Beach law firm of Chillingworth and Chillingworth. Both firms had settled on an insanity defense, and Lena did much to support their case. <laughs> As she testified in her own defense, she gazed into a crystal ball she had on the witness stand, telling of the 12 previous lives she had lived. Okay. She claimed to have lived in the Garden of Eden. She had been the goddess Isis in Egypt, then Ber Berenice, the last queen of the Jews, King Herod's wife, and that she had been eaten by lions. In her next life, she was with William Shakespeare, and that Lena served as the role model for his Ophelia character in Hamlet. So it just so happened she was at every major turning point in the history of the world. She, she wants to be the main character so bad. <laughs> so bad. Yes. It's giving main character energy. <laughs> That's Lena's theme song for sure. <clears throat> Throughout the testimony, she claims Fred was always there and always tormenting her in different ways. So it's just, it's really funny that she can pick out this one soul. Right. She proclaimed that she would be found innocent and that this would all be the start of her national career serving as vice president of the United States. Oh my God. Before she would go on to becoming president. As we all know, this is not the case. <laughs> <laughs> she did not make it to any presidency after this murder trial. <laughs> no. 
She then went on to predict that President Eugene B. Debs would be assassinated and she would then be made president. Right. Yes. Several psychologists testified to her mental state. Two found her to be insane, while one thought the whole thing to be a clever ruse. I personally agree with the third say The thirdsgiving, you know, <laughs> the right vibes here. Yes. And the one that we are in agreement with agreed that Lena was a psychopath, but she knew right from wrong when she shot Fred. Yes. Totally agree. However... The all-male jury recessed and came back in less than three hours with their verdict, not guilty by reason of insanity. And just like a man to call a woman insane. Mm-hmm. The judge committed her to the Florida State Mental Hospital at Chattahoochee. She proclaimed to the judge that she would have rather been sent to the gallows and died than a mental hospital. Dramatic much. When Stop being a martyr. <laughs> yeah. And she didn't even, she wasn't even in the uh, mental institution for like more than a year. And I'll get to that in just a second. But when asked about his daughter, Reverend Clark of Atlanta declared, the law of man may declare our daughter a robber and murderess, but in the sight of God and her aged father and mother, she is as innocent as a newborn babe. Sure. Are you that forgiving of all of your congregation or just your blood born? I'll go with the second choice. So, Lena's stay at Chattahoochee didn't even last a year. Before she quietly returned to West Palm Beach and resumed to work with the church and the Red Cross. She lived in a house with her sister Maud on Poinsettia Street and neither woman would ever marry. The house, however, belonged to Chillingworth's the lawyers as payment for their legal services they trusted lena enough the tr the church trusted lena enough to send her to england to research her family history and lena shows up frequently in articles with her relief efforts through 1940s and 1950s and in later years lena did much writing on her church history for several publications lena passed away in 1967 and is buried in woodlawn cemetery in west palm beach so that was a nice little short, sweet win, sweet-ish, I don't know, funny comedic <laughs> relief. I just, I was looking up old-timey murders, stumbled upon this one, and it was kind of like, there was turn after turn after turn. Yeah. But it's also hard to find a lot of resources for these older cases, so. Yeah, they're fun, but yeah, you have to really work to get, like, a good amount of info. Oh, yeah. I worked for this one, and I I tried. I promise. I tried. I researched this case for, like, six hours, and that's what this brought you, was ten nice. minutes of information <laughs> from six hours of research. That's fine. It is what it is. But we hope you enjoyed this case, and we'll kick you off to the last call. Welcome back to another last call. And today, I was inspired by uh, Sloan's... Uh, Legally blonde, little unknown <laughs> facts or whatnot. And I found one that I think Sloan's going to be real excited about. Here are some things you may not know about Miss Congeniality. Oh, yay! <laughs> I love Sandra Bullock. Yes. Yes. 
So one of the first things you might not know is in the original cut of the movie, Edward Herman, I think mm-hmm. is how you say his last night. He's the one that plays Rory's grandfather in Gilmore Girls. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. He uh, played the father of Sandra Bullock's character, Gracie. Why was that not kept? <laughs> I don't know. That would have just been like the cherry on top of an already great movie. Yep. It... And so there's a lot of things that they like bring up that didn't make it a cut. And I'm like, but that could have been so great. But then again, the movie, how it is, it's, it's just so, so... great. <laughs> Uh, in the first trailer, a scene is shown at his wedding where he says, honey, are you a lesbian? To which Bullock replies, I wish this thing along with his cameo was cut. Oh, could you imagine Richard Gilmore? (laughs) I can. (laughs) It should have been a thing. Yep. It would have been great. So here, for for any men listening that think, you know, women getting ready to do anything is, you know, a short, sweet, to the point thing. Here is something that will prove that it is not. It took 30 minutes to get Sandra Bullock camera ready for pre-makeover Gracie and 2.5 hours to prepare for her pageant look. And for that, I say, yes. (laughs) Sandra wore a wig for most of the film, which I'm sure her hair has thanked her for, because with how much she goes from, like, in the beginning of the film, you know, she's, like, kind of frizzy and all that. And then all of a sudden, she's, like, sleek and, like, her hair is, I'm sure it definitely helped (laughs) Bullock did a number of her own stunts and had a lot of combat training for the movie. She also had to learn how to handle semi-automatic weapons. Benjamin Bratt played uh, Sandra's FBI partner, Eric Matthews. The two had previously starred as police partners in the movie Demolition Man, I think. It, Demolition Man? Mm-hmm. I think that's how it is. Demolition Man. Um, Another fact. No stunt actors were used in the wrestling scene between uh, Bullock and (laughs) Brad. Which... uh, That makes it even better. Right? The scene took 12 hours to film and according to Brad... We were in certain positions where I'd look at Sandy and say, It's a good thing we know each other. I'm just picturing when, like, they have each other in, like, the, like, leg locks where their faces are between. (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, that would be a little awkward if, like, you're just kind of meeting somebody. Yeah. (laughs) Especially if you didn't use any, like, stunt. Yeah. (sighs) Sandra Bullock said she found the beauty pageant scenes more challenging than the stunt scenes. The most difficult thing for me is walking and talking with breasts that aren't mine in six-inch stiletto heels. 
That's my action. The leaping and jumping around is no problem. It's the walking and talking that's the difficult part. Which makes me love her even more. <laughs> uh, because of this, she said she had to practice walking down the stairs a lot for the pageant scenes. Which, walking in heels is a feat in itself. And then, yeah, anytime you come across like stairs or anything like that. I, I, I say like a little prayer and just hope I don't fall flat on my ass. Amen. <laughs> uh, Sandra Bullock wanted the swimsuit contest written out of the movie and said that it was a bone of contention for her. Obviously, she didn't win that one. Yeah. I'm sure like nowadays if she would do like say that, they would do it because she is a bigger name. Mm-hmm. But... This is one of the movies that made her a big name. Yes. For sure. Although set in New York and San Antonio, most of, most of the film was filmed in Austin, Texas. The scene at the start of the movie where Bullock drives through New York and her siren on and rushes into Starbucks also was filmed in Austin. The scene took 12 hours to shoot in the hot Texas sun and it was someone's job to hold an umbrella over the actress so she didn't get too hot. I would have gladly taken that job. Right. That is miserable. So here's something I definitely didn't know. Matt Dillon was originally meant to play Eric. I think that would just change the movie way too much. Yeah. <laughs> like, Benjamin Bratt and Sandra Bullock just have, like, the right chemistry. chemistry, Um, He actually dropped out shortly before shooting began. So, I'm sure that because they did have a past work relationship, it kind of helped be like, alright, let's throw him in. Yeah. To get Michael Caine on board, the script had to be rewritten. It took some pretty major script rewriting to get Oscar winner Michael Caine aboard. Nine originally planned parts were dumped to beef up Caine's role significantly to nail his interests. Which, if you don't know who he is, he's uh, basically the pageant coach. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, He's been in so many things, I can't believe he, like, threw such a fit. <laughs> like, I, I I, automatically think of, like, uh, Austin Powers' gold member. Yeah. Because he plays uh, Austin the Powers' father. father. Yeah. <laughs> the scene where Bullock and Kane almost get uh, hit by a car... She shouts, I'm gliding here, is a parody of the scene from Midnight Cowboy where Dustin Hoffman shouts, I'm walking here. Okay. Kane's wife, Shakira, which is not the Shakira we're all thinking about. It's a different one. She was a beauty queen and came third in the 1967 Miss World competition. According to the actor, she taught him masses of little tricks for the movie. Every time Kane fluffed the line, Bullock would shout, Take his Oscar away! <laughs> so, in the final scene where the Statue of Liberty kind of blows up, yeah. there were four different heads like created for that. <laughs> so uh. that they could have reshoots. In the original movie script, 
the threat of the pageant came from a fictional radical feminist group called Daughters of the New American Revolution, who in this version of the plot had cut off her hair, no, had cut off the hair of other contestants. So, I'm kind of glad they didn't go that way because it's just... That would just, again, change the whole movie. I can't imagine any difference. Yeah. I've, I've watched Miss Congeniality so many times. <laughs> right. Like, any changes to it at this point, even theoretical, no. Right. Mm-hmm. Heather Burns, who played Cheryl Fraser. <laughs> What's the perfect date? <laughs> <laughs> April 22nd. Because it's not too hot. It's not it's too, too cold. cold. All you need it's is a light jacket. <laughs> that's the day before my birthday. Uh, so that's why I can always remember. Right. April 22nd. Well, she learned how to twirl batons for the movie. Though a stunt double was brought in for the flaming baton scene. The stunt double, uh, Coral Noonan, was a PhD student and twirler for the Texas Longhorns <clears throat> at the University of Texas where the scene was filmed. If I was the actress, I would have been like, let me burn this shit down. I um, know. It was like, you and fire is just a scary thing. <laughs> <laughs> a large am- amount of the beauty pageant audience was made up of cardboard cutouts. Which, now I feel like I'm going to have to watch and just like stare at the audience and see if I can really tell. <laughs> Or if they were that good at editing. Yeah. The scene where Bullock sings, You think I'm gorgeous, you want to kiss me, was apparently inspired by Eddie Murphy. You want to love me. You want to hug me. You want to kiss me. I loved that part. Like, whenever that movie came out, I used to always do it. And my sister would be like, just does shaking her what, head. Does it say what Matthew McConaughey? Not Matt. Eddie Murphy. Oh, I thought you said Matthew McConaughey. Eddie Murphy. Uh, Bullock briefly dated Bob Schneider, a Texas-based mu- musician who recorded the song Bullets featured in the movie. And the last little fact that this article has is... The Miss United States song, The Girls Sing on the Bus, was co-written by a six-year-old boy called Clyde Lawrence. His father, Mark Lawrence, was one of the writers of the movie. She's Miss United States. (laughs) She's beauty and she's grace. Uh, But I thought it was a great little thing. I still can't believe that it wasn't almost Benjamin Brett. Yeah. Like, I would probably not have liked that movie so much. That movie was perfect as is. Yes. Although, no, I'm kind of sad that Richard Gilmore wasn't in it. Oh, yes. True. 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 But that is my last call. I really hope you enjoyed it. Um. Be sure to check us out on all of our socials. It's all tequila she wrote. If you got anything you want to, you know, let us know. You can send us anything through there. Or you can send us an email at tequila she wrote at gmail.com. Try to respond as quickly as we can. 
We also have our Patreon. The easiest way to find us is, is to go to patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote. You can also go to those social media profiles and we have a link tree there that has a direct link to the Patreon. You can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get ad-free episodes and bonus episodes. One bonus episode a month. And then from there, we just have different tiers that have different bonus content and other things that are available to you. Go check it out. And thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express, Hot Mess Express today. Toot toot. Beep beep. <laughs>